Hi, my name is Brendan Malone and you're listening to The Dispatches, the podcast that strives to cut through all the noise in order to challenge the popular narratives of the day with some good old-fashioned contrarian thinking. You might not always agree, but at least you'll be taking a deeper look at the world around you. Hi everybody, welcome along to another episode of The Dispatches. It's great to be back with you again. If you are new here and you're not already a subscriber, then why not? Wherever you are listening to this right now, whatever platform you're on, because we're across a few of them, hit that little subscribe button, that follow button, whatever it says in front of you there, to, to, uh, to sign up and get regular updates about every single new episode that we publish uh, we try and put out a couple of, at least a couple of episodes a week. And exciting news, as of yesterday, we launched our first ever patron-only exclusive episode of the podcast. So if you want to get in on that and you want to get extra episodes that are available only to our patrons, then all you have to do is head on over to patreon.com forward slash left foot media. The link is in the show notes for this show. And when you are there, if you become a supporter of left foot media uh, on any tier, $5 and above, so five bucks a month, what's that? Cup of coffee. Uh, five bucks and above, you will get access to that extra podcast. And we're aiming to produce one of those at least one of those every single week. So there's quite a bit of bonus content there. So it uh, really is value for money. So well worth doing that. Yesterday's episode, uh, we had a, a deep dive into this issue of John Key and his comments around the current state of things in New Zealand and the handling, handling of the pandemic. So we've had some good feedback from that already. But if you want in on that, you want to get access to that, it's pretty simple. Just uh, help us to create more of this content by becoming a patron. Uh, every little bit helps, and you're also getting bang for your buck by doing that. Right, today's topic. The state is not God, why religion should be classified as an essential service, and obviously this is during the pandemic. Now here's the funny thing, today's episode is kind of, um, the timing of all of this is kind of quite fortuitous, because I'd been planning, it's on my list, I have an ever-growing list of podcast topics, and um, as I've said, let me reiterate this yet again, another episode where I'm having to remind people, this is not solely about po uh, a podcast solely about COVID, but COVID is sort of the, the soup du jour at the moment. It's just every day, it, it's, there's a sort of focus on it and it's being talked about because it's such a dominating issue right now in our current cultural situation. Um, but I've got this ever-growing list of topics, and I had planned actually this first uh, episode for this week that I, that I was going to talk about something other than COVID, but then this morning a petition came across my social media feeds which I signed, and it related directly to a topic that I had on my list and I wanted to talk about, and that was this topic today of why I think religion should be reclassified as an essential service during a time of pandemic. Let me read to you from what the petition said. It's on the New Zealand government website. And I signed the petition because I think it's really, really important. It's a petition of Chris Baines, uh, essential service status request for ministers of religion providing soul care. I love that phrase, soul care. Here's what the petition says, that the House of Representatives urged the government to grant essential service status to all ministers of religion across all alert levels for the purpose of providing soul care. 
In several countries, soul care services have been considered essential during the COVID pandemic. We believe that for people of faith, in person, soul care is essential in times of crisis and uncertainty. From experience, we believe withholding such services detrimentally affects the spiritual, mental, physical, social and cultural well-being of people of faith in New Zealand. Hospital chaplaincy services are deemed essential up to alert level 4. We are simply requesting the same consideration. And I wholeheartedly agree and support this with one little caveat actually. One little caveat. And the little caveat is I would say it's not just of benefit to people of faith in New Zealand. I think the whole country benefits from this in two ways. Number one, when people find themselves in a time of great crisis, and this really has affected a a culture that was already in a state of crisis before COVID hit, and a crisis of meaning was one of our great, the great previous pandemic was really a spiritual pandemic. And so when a, a moment like this hits, people need to go to places to seek solace and comfort and guidance in the midst of all of that. And one of the most obvious places that people will seek out are houses of religious faith, you know, churches, synagogues, mosques, etc. People will go there seeking uh, solace and comfort. And so that's an important it's a very, very important thing to have for people who are well outside the faith. And also, there's a knock-on effect. So if people of faith, and there's quite a few of them around this country, are actually being spiritually nourished and fed and have a sense of stability and peace and flourishing about them, then guess what? They're going to be like those little lights on that very dark path. That, that, that Lots of little lights help you to flourish in your journey on a dark path. And so they actually, there's a huge benefit to wider society from this as well, which I'm going to sort of delve into a bit more deeply in, in, in a moment when I talk about why I think this is so important. So that's the one little caveat, but I've signed it because I think it's, I think it's absolutely essential. So like I said, I've been planning to do a podcast on this issue. It's on my list of issues that are worthy of our consideration, I believe. And so the timing really was fortuitous. And so I decided, well, let's tackle this today. I think what we're seeing right now in New Zealand and not just New Zealand, but in uh, other countries as well around the West is we are seeing what I would call the, or a very prototypical socialist response to this pandemic, this crisis. I'm a guy who formally voted Labour uh, and I came from a welfare class family and before that it was a working class family. And so very much I sort of had this idea that the, I guess that, what would you call it, the socialist the socialism of labor was the way to go, but in actual fact, I've, I've had a, what, what should we say, I've had a deepening of my understanding on these issues and, and I wouldn't vote and I wouldn't support socialism now at all. In fact, I think there's lots of serious flaws with it, but I'm not trying to be negative today to those who might be socialist in their outlook. I think, though, that we just have to speak frankly about the fact that this is a very prototypical socialist response in the sense that socialism is very much grounded in this notion that the state is uh, our mother, our saviour, our friend. Uh, The state should be the thing to which we all as individuals and groups outside of the state within society defer to. Uh, The state will create the systems, the mechanisms, the necessary things for giving us the good life, for keeping us safe, uh, etc., etc., etc. That should be nothing controversial about that. If 
uh, unless you're someone who's voting socialist but doesn't really understand the sort of the principles and philosophies of socialism, um, because that's really that's what they're in the business of doing. And so we are seeing a very prototypical socialist response. The, the problem is that a prototypical socialist response is not a good one. <laughs> it really isn't, and especially in a time of crisis. Uh, the, the, so many of the problems I think we are witnessing throughout this pandemic are not so much aberrations as they are inherent flaws in the system when you create a system of statism. Now, it's not just socialists who, who have a statist approach to things. There are other systems as well that would do this. But this sort of approach is very much, we are witnessing, I think, the inherent flaws of this because the simple wor- the, well, the simple truth is that, that governments are not actually up to the task, not even remotely, of saving the world and making it a better place. I think the, the best governments are really the governments who recognise that fact and then do their best to do a good job where they're supposed to be, you know, to act in a way that is, uh, that is virtuous and, and is responsible uh, where they should be doing that, you know, doing the jobs that are proper to their role, but also at the same time trying to actually limit their interference in places where they shouldn't be, and also, thirdly, creating and cultivating the conditions that allow for uh, um, smaller groups and for individuals outside of the state to actually get on with the business of building a great, flourishing society, because it's not done by the government. <laughs> it's, it's done outside of the government. As the old uh, adage goes, the old um, joke that gets shared from time to time, uh, the nine most frightening words in the English language are, we're from the government and we're here to help. And uh, it, it really is often, more often than not, that that turns out to be the case, that the help that they're offering either isn't actually good or the help that they're offering isn't very helpful because it's just not effective. Um, the, 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 the cold, hard reality of it is that the actual abilities of any government to adequately address and fix issues and major issues in a society uh, is actually extremely limited, extremely limited, certainly a lot more limited, a heck of a lot more limited than what her representatives, her politicians and her bureaucrats would like to claim. They certainly uh, would like to claim credit and would like to claim that they can do all sorts of wonderful and miraculous you know, positively divine things for humanity when in actual fact their abilities are extremely limited. Uh, Governments tend to be good at creating, well, certainly modern governments, at creating bureaucratic machines. And there's lots of complex reasons for that, but that's just the reality of it. In fact, when you look at uh, good outcomes in society, there's really, I think, the two most common examples where you get effective outcomes in this sort of space Uh, when you have healthy private-public partnerships. So, you know, the government working in a a really good and healthy uh, and obviously transparent way with the private sector. And interestingly, actually, um, I read a great book a few years ago by uh, Yuval Levine, who wrote a very good book, book, uh, particularly focused on America, but I think it's relevant around the world as well. But it, it was called The Fractured Republic. And in that book, he talked about one of the points he made was he thinks that we really need to strengthen this private-public partnership model. 
because both private and public have their strengths and their weaknesses. And the best way to actually curb the excesses and the weaknesses of private and public is to put the two together and make them try and work hand in glove where that is appropriate to do that and where that is possible. And the, the, the sort of the, so for example, the, the, the weakness or the tendency of, of the public sector, of course, is often a, a propensity towards waste, uh, wasteful spending, poor management of resources, uh, you know, they're the, the slow you know, responses that are not good, that are just slow and often ineffective. And, and one of the reasons why is because they are not driven by a profit motive. And so when there's no incentive because you're being propped up by taxpayer funding or borrowing or whatever it is that's keeping that particular part of the public sector alive, then, you know, th there's nothing really on the line. There's no great risk. And so, you know, the, you're, uh, you're not as accountable in that regard, if you like. And so the, the appropriate cautions are not being taken. Now, the excess of the private sector, of course, though, is comes also from the fact that there is a profit motor and motive, and what can very easily and, and, and often does happen is greed becomes a factor and profit becomes so all-consuming that what happens is that the human person is and well-being and virtue and responsibility are often sidelined uh, in order to satisfy and guarantee profit motives and or, or, or a you know profitable outcome and so the two though come together and all of a sudden they start curbing the worst excesses in each other his 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 model by the way was one where the public would have uh, genuine competition between the two so an example from America would be that you know medical insurance so there, there might be a state option for health insurance but then there's also private options and so the 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 citizen gets to actually choose. They're not forced in one direction or another. Um, and in doing so, there's a really good thing happening there. So so there's other, there's other models of that as well, of course, but this private-public partnership tends to produce good outcomes. Uh, and the other one that produces good outcomes is when the government actually respects subsidiarity. Now, subsidiarity is a very important and under-respected uh, principle in our modern Western society right now, it's, and it's doing huge damage. So subsidiarity in a nutshell is the principle that authority should be invested or given uh, to the people who are in the higher, in any given hierarchy, who it should be given and invested in the people who, uh, or where it is most appropriately used. So for example, in the hierarchy of society, uh, let's talk about the responsibility of parenting. The most appropriate place for that authority to be invested, to be given, is actually at the level of individual parents. Mothers and fathers should be given that authority and it should be respected. And the only time the state should be involved there is when there is harm to the child and the state needs to actually come in and protect children, say from a violent family and like social services might need to come in and actually rescue the children. But that shouldn't be the norm, that, that the, parent, the state shouldn't be parenting children. It's, it's, that's the responsibility most appropriately exercised by the parents themselves. And subsidiarity respects that. 
subsidiary doesn't subsidiarity doesn't say, well, let's take that responsibility off parents and the state will do more and more parenting of the kids, thank you very much, because that results in an absolute disaster. So when you've got governments that respect the principle of subsidiarity, what they're doing is they're empowering and equipping people uh, you know, in the right places in the hierarchy to actually create the necessary conditions for a healthy, vibrant, peaceful, stable uh, flourishing of society. Um, this is something that the great Edmund Burke talked about, and, and one of his often quoted points was what he referred to as the, the little platoons of society. And it's, it's actually the little platoons that make societies great. It's not the state. It's not the government. The, the state does not pre-exist before those little platoons. The state flows out of and only exists and only can exist because of the little platoons that come first. And what he means is things like family. Family is a little platoon. It is the first and most important community of all. It is the first community that every human person is born into. It is the place where they discover meaning, where they discover the reality of uh, the biological uh, and you know sexual complementarity between men and women and the different giftings and strengths and weaknesses we bring to the world. It's the first community where you learn about conflict negotiation and budgeting and, and uh, protection and love and nurture and, uh, and negotiation, all those kinds of things, right? It's, it's, there's so much. It's the first and most important community of all. Uh, people of faith would say it's also the domestic church. It, it's the place where you are first formed in the practice of faith. It's, it's a, that's a prof- profoundly important little platoon. Another, another little platoon, of course, is religious congregations. Houses of worship, communities, worshipping communities, these are little platoons. And it's these little platoons, not the government, that actually makes the world better, that actually saves people, which actually is in the business of, of, of genuine care. The state cannot be your mother. The state is definitely not your God. Uh, and this is one of the great dangers of socialism. Is, is, and, and really it's an evil, I would argue, because it's such a distortion of authentic human anthropology and who the human person actually is and where they will find true meaning and fulfillment and connection and authentic community. And it's not with the state. It just isn't. So why is this change so important? Uh, why, why should we grant essential service status? Why should it have been granted right from the very beginning to... Um, religious ministers and to um, the the congregations that you know the 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 practice, if you like, of of gathering for religious worship. Well, I think this change now is so much more important because it's become increasingly clear that COVID is not going anywhere fast. It COVID is not going to be gone in two months' time. It's just not. It's it's clear now that we're already about to hit our second year of the pandemic. We're only it's amazing, really, when you think about it. But we're only a few months away from hitting two years into a pandemic and still going strong. And 
it's interesting. I'm I'm not really listening to the 1 p.m. press conferences in New Zealand because I think there's a lot of blather that just comes out of there. It's just it's pointless. So much of it's just propagandizing. So I'm not really tuning in. Important stuff will appear in the headlines, and so I'll check those a couple of times a day and, and be done with it. Or if someone rings me in a, a panic state of emergency and urgency, I know that something's gone wrong, and that's how I find out about it, right? So I'm not tuning into that because there's there is uh, so much blather there. But what I have been doing is when reading and I guess following the news about this is listening to what people who are not directly involved with government but who have perhaps more of an invested stake in this. Politicians, their stake in it is really, it's about power, their desire to be re-elected. And that's that's a, a, a great danger in and of itself because you know, people will do and say anything to get ele- to get elected or get re-elected. And so that's always something you've got to filter political information through. There's sort of so much of that going on. But what where I think you can start to get a bit more of a sense of what's really going on is when you start listening to those who have actually got some skin in the game. So a politician, their skin in the game is is really is a very deceptive skin, and that is the fact that that uh, that it's about power. And, and, you know, you do whatever you have to to keep a hold of that. But politicians are earning a good wicket uh, and they, they're getting paid and there's nothing, you know, there's no, really, the, the risk is minimal for them. There are other people, though, outside of the government who are, their livelihoods are at risk, their businesses are at risk, uh, their industries are at risk. And for them, the risk is they've got skin in the game. It's, it's you know, their ability to actually earn money, feed a family and all those kinds of things are directly affected by the decisions that they are making. So those sorts of people, I think, tend to play, they're not, they don't tend to play fast and loose with facts and figures. They tend to take a more measured and prudent assessment of things. And a lot of those types of people, and I think this is where you can get glean some interesting insights, are now regularly talking about the pandemic in a sort of two to five year, and some even as, as long as 10 year timeline. Now, that doesn't mean that we'll be in the current state that we're in for 10 years, but there's a, there is a tail to this thing that is not short, it seems. And so, you know, that, that fact that it's not, it clearly doesn't appear to be going anywhere fast. And I would probably say on top of that, I think that the next few years are likely to be some of the most difficult as that reality really hits home and as the implications of that and the flow on impl- implications of what we've done and what we've been doing and Governments becoming increasingly more desperate to try and solve the problem, and when governments get desperate, they tend towards more towards uh, authoritarian solutions or throwing everything at the wall and hoping something sticks. And that's not a particularly stable place to be, you know. Leadership in a place of 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 um, you know volatile, uncertain, confused, and ambiguous times. It's it's uh, yeah. <laughs> And so, th- th- what 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 it means though is it's going to be more and more important to uh, to try and maintain uh, healthy social stability, more important than ever before. Um, and I think it's really the sort of the tale is where a lot of this will catch up with people. I think when you're in the midst of a, the initial stages of a crisis, you run on adrenaline, and then when you when that dies away, that's when the true reality of it sa- starts to set in. And I think that's for a lot of people that's really where the danger and of of the breakdown in social stability and, and social flourishing and, and human flourishing and societal flourishing and peace and stability can really start to happen. 
And you know who's essential to that? It's the church and other religious groups that are absolutely essential to maintaining that aspect of our society. The state is completely incapable of addressing that crisis, especially a state which is built on an ideology of relativism or a state that has just been so corrupted by various political uh, and you know, ideological interests that are just do not correspond to an authentic human anthropology. And it's just even even the best of states of governments is not capable of addressing that need. In fact, ironically, the best of governments know that and they recognize that. And so they limit themselves and get the heck out of the way. And they let the little platoon of the church, the little platoons of religious groups actually get on with the business of saving the world and and by leading people back into a place of, of uh, authentic spiritual flourishing and a place of authentic human meaning. Now, we already had, as I said, an existential crisis before this pandemic hit. We had a, a spiritual pandemic before the viral one hit. And so I think in a time like that, uh, a great crisis and upheaval will only make those particular problems worse. It, it really amplifies the, you know, when, when you're out of food or when you've got very little food left in the cupboards and all of a sudden a famine hits, you know, you, the crisis gets really, really serious very quickly. And so when you're out of spiritual food and the, and the famine hits, you're in real trouble. And what our religious leaders and religious communities provide to New Zealand society or to any society where they operate is absolutely essential. It's more essential even than a trip to the supermarket. That is things like spiritual comfort, calm, guidance, moral stability, uh, an ability to just discern clearly and calmly and carefully through issues. There, there is so much that is essential to the current crisis that we find ourselves in now. The state can't do it. It is only uh, our religious communities that can provide and meet those needs. Um, one of the great tragedies for me, I think, is, is in this, has been watching some of our religious leaders lose their mojo in the midst of this sort of um, situation where a lot of them have just sort of deferred to the state. And it's almost like, the, you know, the, like a loss of confidence and their calling, and their vocation, and what their actual abilities and capabilities are, what they should or shouldn't be doing. I think about something like um, the situation right now for uh, Catholic Christians in uh, the Diocese of, of Wellington here in New Zealand. Um, in Wellington, they're under the current Alert Level 2 situation, which means that we're allowed to have uh, worship, religious congregations, worship services, for up to uh, 100 worshippers. And that's a, uh, right now, that's a real blessing compared to where we've been. But even in Wellington, they are still, their um, religious leaders have said, no, we're still not going to open up the doors, even though we can have 100 people gathering, 100 worshippers. And that, that's just, that's, um, that's a disaster, I would say. That, that's really not good. That, that's a sign of a spiritual mojo that has been lost. There's a confidence that's been diminished. There's a, been a, a loss of priorities and where the actual calling should be and where what it is to be as this sort of 
deferring to the state has really taken hold. This sort of this state paternalism has led to an unhealthy safetyism, you know, a fixation on the, 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 de- the devil bug, which is lurking behind every tree now, even when it's not. Um, there's, there's just there's no need for that sort of extreme. But this is what's happened, I think, is the state has overstepped its bounds. And there's there's been, because you know it hasn't been pushed back against hard enough, there has been, as I would say, a, a loss of spiritual mojo, a, a loss of religious confidence. Um, yeah, that situation in Wellington. I mean, I, I'm really grateful. One of the things I'm really grateful for is that, uh, every, you know, it, that's not the situation in any other diocese. Obviously, Auckland's under complete lockdown because the whole place is under lockdown. It's very different. But every other diocese around the country that is able to has resumed their Sunday worship and they are just finding ways to actually make that work because that's what you're supposed to do. That's exactly what the church is supposed to do at times like this. It's supposed to be there. Uh, all this talk of, of, of community and care and justice and, and, and going to the margins and, and uh, you know, what you do to the least of these you do to me, that doesn't mean a thing if you're not actually doing it, if you're not doing it. And when, when you close the doors of the worshipping congregation and you do it by choice, if, you, if when the state's doing it, that's a terrible thing. When church leaders are doing it, that's also a terrible thing. The, the, the genuine care that our society and the thing the society that we're living in right now needs most desperately from the church is for the doors of our houses of worship to be open and for our people to be going into those houses of worship to commune together with their God, to be spiritually nourished, to be equipped, to be morally refocused, and then to be sent back out into their communities as profoundly responsible citizens who are grounded with a deep and transcendent fixed reference point, which gives them a great and deep sense of meaning and purpose, a desire to help and assist those in need, and a stability within themselves to be able to do that even in the midst of great crisis. Now, to do that, though, they need the worshipping community to be gathering together. And the state, whether it's the state or church leaders that are shutting that down, that is not a good thing. I've witnessed through this, as I said, even even what I would call a loss of pastoral creativity. I'm extremely grateful again to be in a parish, uh, where a church where we've got a, a parish priest who right from the very beginning never lost that focus on on pastoral creativity. And his whole focus was, okay, we've got these limitations that we're working within, but what can we do? to be pastorally creative, not just shut the doors and walk away. What can we do to say, okay, we're only allowed, for example, this is just a for example, let's say they're only allowed 10 people at a, at a worship service or in a room together, and, and, and you've got to do X, Y, and Z to meet certain safety requirements. What can we do for our people to, to, to meet that, to still ensure that their spiritual nourishment, that their well-being and the well-being of wider society is actually being catered to through our primary vocation, which is in the, the religious and pastoral space, uh, and, and, and still find creative ways to sort of work around those restrictions to ensure that keeps happening. Okay, we, ca- we can't meet together on, on Sundays for worship because it's just not feasible with only 10 people in a room. That's just not possible. We'd have to put on so many church services to cater for that. Uh, that it, it just there's not enough hours in the day. So what are we going to do instead? How can we find ways to ensure that our churches are open, that other forms of prayer and gathering which are 
able to be done and can be done you know, in, in a, throughout the week, for example, how do we ensure that's still happening? You know, that, that pastoral creativity I, I sense and I see actually has been dulled in some of our religious leaders. And I think the reason for that loss of mojo is because the state has just overstepped its bounds. And I think that there's been too much deferring to that instead of standing up saying, hey, hold on, hold on. This is not your job. This is not your job. We will, you know, absolutely cooperate with and be 120% responsible and, and virtuous citizens uh, when it comes to acting in ways that are, are prudent and that are not foolhardy and don't create extra risk. But th- at the same time, religious congregations are not the property of the state. The practice of uh, religious worship and, uh, you know, the practice of religion and all of that that entails, not just the Sunday worship, but the pastoral guidance and care for souls and everything else, that is not the property of the state. It is most appropriately governed by the church and her leaders. And so the state should be consulting with us here. And the state should also be doing its best to effectively keep the heck out of the kitchen to stay out of the kitchen, <laughs> you know, let us, let us cook the soup, uh, um, and, and we'll work within what are obviously appropriate, um, boundaries in a time of great crisis where public safety is a factor, but you know, you don't get to shut down something that is essential by fail because you failed to really recognize and classify it as essential. This is really the principle of subsidiarity in action, respect the subsidiarity of the little platoon of those religious groups. And by the way, I think that's how you get a much healthier reaction and, and cohesion within society with different groups who, who, and, and, and interaction between citizens and the government because the, the citizens actually don't really interact with the government directly. They never normally would do that. It's a, very, it's a minority situation where you do that. Instead, you most commonly interact with arms of government. So representatives of the state in, various, in their various forms are what you're interacting with, but you're not interacting with the politicians and, the, and directly sort of with the, the key, if you like, essential mechanisms and people of, of government. And so I think this is why like subsidiarity is just so very, very important. And so w- what it means is that the, the, the people who are actually part of those various mechanisms and offices of the state, they're also members of those religious congregations. So they're able to be there as first and foremost worshippers in a worshipping community, but who also have this other hat that they wear outside of that during the week where they they are employed and work within the mechanisms and the arms of the state. And so there's a sort of a, I think there's a, when that subsidiarity with religious congregations is respected, there's sort of a healthy interplay and other citizens around them are able to get, I think, a sense of stability and a certain trust is, is really nurtured there, that the government isn't overstepping its bounds that we can have trust here, that they have their priorities in order. And that includes the religious and spiritual uh, and pastoral priorities of the people in this country, which they are not capable of meeting. They need to recognize that fact first and foremost and step back and let the essential workers, the people of the church, the leaders of religious congregations of whatever stripe or flavor, actually do their job because they're the essential workers in that situation. The, 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 this is a desperate need right now, I would argue. And and what religious leaders and religious communities are able to do 
is something the government can't do, and that is to provide genuine social and moral stability in a time of radical upheaval. The kind of radical upheaval that you're, we're experiencing right now, most people have never even known. We've, we've never lived through anything remotely like this. Previous generations, it was different. But most of us have never lived through anything even remotely like this. Like I said at the beginning, the state is not our God. She is not our mother. The state cannot save us. And we, we, we actually need to recognize that fact. And, and, and I think it's time that we started treating the things that can actually do the important work and facilitate the important work of the salvation of human beings. It's, it's time we started treating them as essential and recognizing that fact. And, and the government starts recognizing that fact and it needs to. And, and that's when you get good governance. When a government doesn't overstep its bounds, it rightly recognizes its own limitations and then it acts with, uh, to empower and to respect the principle of subsidiarity to ensure that those who can best fulfill that role in a time of great crisis like this are actually empowered and equipped to do that. So there you go. Thanks for tuning in. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. And don't forget before we go, if you want to get access to those extra weekly episodes of The Dispatches, head on over to patreon.com forward slash leftfootmedia. The link is in the show notes. And if you become a supporter with $5 or more per month, you will get access to that extra weekly episode of The Dispatches. So there you go, value for money. Thanks again to all of our patrons. You guys are awesome. I'll see you next time on The Dispatches. The Dispatches podcast is a production of Left Foot Media. If you enjoyed this show, then please help us to ensure that more of this great content keeps getting made by becoming a patron of our work at patreon.com forward slash leftfootmedia. Link in the show notes. Thanks for listening. See you next time on The Dispatches. Mm-hmm.